Hi there. This is Allison McGee, your host. Finally able to talk to you because I have finally managed to put my headphones on. Why? I cannot seem to remember week to week how to flip these earpieces down so I can put them on my head. Reveals one of my many inadequacies when it comes to spatial relations. I am sitting at my dining table, staring out the window at the birds, fighting yet again over the bird feeder. Uh, I'm not sure why I call this a dining table. It's a long, heavy, solid wood table. It's a piece of furniture that I love. It's also one that I actually bought instead of foraged from the curb at the end of the month, which, this is my hot tip for you, is the time when people move in and out of their apartments and houses. They leave behind such beautiful things with signs taped on them that say, free. I'm thinking today about a time long ago when, if you had lived in downtown Boston, where I lived, you might have seen me out walking. I would have been the tall girl with the long brown hair who walked miles and miles along the Charles River on the Cambridge side, then crossed over one of the bridges and walked miles and miles back along the Boston side of the river. If you saw me out there often enough, you might have wanted to say hi to me, but you probably wouldn't have. You are so intimidating when you walk, people have said to me then and now. It's like you're so focused, I don't dare interrupt you. The thing about walkers, people who walk for miles and miles every day, is that there's usually a reason why they walk, and I was no exception. I was 22 years old just graduated from college in Vermont with a degree in Chinese, and I had moved to Boston to begin my career as a penniless and entirely unpublished writer. (laughs) I had wanted to be a fiction writer since I was a little girl, and I jumped right in. Didn't even try to find a real job. I set up shop in my one-room apartment on Charles Street, with Charles Street typing a dollar a page, Signs thumbtacked around the Harvard and MIT campuses. This was about one year before Apple started selling its very first personal computers, one of which I bought immediately. I'm all about speed. But because they hadn't been invented yet, (laughs) I splurged and rented an IBM Selectric 2 typewriter for $40 a month which when I look back on it seems so excessive, but I was all in. My miniature apartment was one room, consisted of a miniature fridge, a miniature stove, and a miniature sink. And I furnished it, of course, from curbside. Garbage night was Tuesday night, and that's when I went out prowling. My room was too small for a bed, so I unrolled a camping pad, one of my first curbside finds, Don't think I'm disgusting. It actually is kind of disgusting, though, isn't it? A camping pad. Which meant that one night I woke up to find my shirt was ever so slightly on fire. But that was okay. Put it out. Went back to sleep. 
I propped my Selectric 2 on an upturned apple crate, which I'd found curbside, propped the papers I typed for students on a music stand next to a wobbly wooden chair, all this was found curbside, in front of my one big window that looked out directly on Charles Street. It was a first floor room slash apartment. (laughs) It would now be called a micro apartment. And I typed away. I had a lot of customers. But I got up at 5 a.m. to write my own short stories before my first typing customers of the day arrived and rang the buzzer to leave their manuscripts. None of my stories were wanted by anyone, and it would in fact be three years before a single one was published by a free neighborhood newspaper that left copies in the 7-Eleven and the laundromat, but I didn't know that and I wouldn't have cared anyway. Writing was what I wanted. The outside world felt chaotic to me, full of craziness, and stories were how I made sense of that chaos. But there was chaos inside me, too. My outside, happy girl living a free life of her own making, making her own schedule, didn't match my inside. I was carrying around a secret, had been carrying this secret for many long years, and no one in the world knew about it. It made sense that I was writing stories about people who looked confident and happy and in charge of themselves on the outside, but who harbored silent, overwhelming secrets on the inside, because that was also me. My secret was that sometimes, most of the time, almost every day, I stuffed myself with food, and then surgically, antiseptically, in a matter of seconds, brought it all back up. I had been doing this since I was 16 years old, but I had been building to it all my life. The self I believed myself to be was unworthy and unlovable. I tried so hard all the time at everything but I never felt myself good enough. The pressure built and built and built this vast hunger to be better, a better person, a better friend, a better daughter, a better sister, a better writer. And this awful consuming disorder was the only way I knew to release that pressure and get some relief, even momentarily. I had told no one, not my best friend, Not my college boyfriend, with whom I spent every moment when we weren't in class. Not my family, not a professional, not an eating disorder group, no one. It felt as if my survival depended on keeping this secret. Without my facade of control and togetherness, wouldn't I fall apart? Every night as I went to sleep, I told myself, Allison, that was the last time you're ever going to do that. This was the last day. You will never do that again. And I would wake up and do it again. Six years in, at age 22, I sat in front of my window on Charles Street and looked ahead into an unknown future filled with more self-hatred and more despair. That night, I went down the street to DeLuca's Market after 9 p.m. because that was when all the muffins went on sale for 50 cents each. Are you sensing a theme here of frugality? Yeah, 
I'm frugal. And I bought a pumpkin raisin muffin the size of my two fists. My God, those pumpkin raisin muffins were huge. They were all huge. The next morning, I woke up, rolled up my camping pad, made a cup of coffee in the old miniature percolator that my grandmother had given me, and I sat in a patch of sun on my rug. I sipped the coffee, I took a bite of muffin, and I started asking myself questions. Are you hungry, Allie? I didn't know. Are you full? I didn't know. Had I ever been full? I wasn't sure. When I finished that muffin, I went directly outside into the daylight and I began to walk. I'm sure I had walked and walked plenty before that one day when I was 22, but it is that particular day that I remember miles and miles along the Charles River, over a bridge to the Cambridge side of the shore, and miles and miles back, all the way asking myself, how do you feel? Are you hungry? Can you feel that muffin in your stomach? Are you full? Are you getting tired? This, the morning muffin, the endless walking, the questions, became a daily routine. Along the way, I recognized other wayfarers. There was a man I called, actually my best friend and I both called him this, Kilt Man, an enormously tall man who always wore a kilt, with eyes that seemed to roam far beyond what was visible, talking to himself. He was rumored to eat a dozen eggs every day, and he walked at least as much as me, something I knew because I saw him everywhere. There was the homeless woman who slept curled in her sleeping bag behind one of the parapets of the Longfellow Bridge, by whose side I sometimes left half a pumpkin muffin. There was the flock of geese that lived by the shore of the river in front of the Cambridge Hyatt Hotel. Geese, who for some reason, like all geese my entire life, hated me and came hissing and running toward me every time I tried to pass. And still, there were giant bowls of chips and giant bowls of ice cream and a giant want in me to stuff myself full of them, which sometimes I did. The difference was that this time, I tried hard not to hate myself for it, and I put no ultimatums on myself when I did that. And I walked and walked and walked. My body grew hard and tough from all my walking. My thoughts began to free themselves and rise up into the sky, and my mind grew calm. It took two and a half years, but two and a half years later, I was through. I had walked my way out of that tangled mess I didn't need to keep that enormous secret anymore because I was done. But not entirely. Because I still carried the weight of all the lying I had done. That was what it felt like to me. That I had lied and lied to all the people I most loved in my life. No one had known what I was doing. 
and it felt as though I needed to make amends. So I sat down and I wrote letters. This is probably a year or two before uh, CompuServe, if any of you remember that. Just as I was one of the first people to buy a PC, I was one of the first people to have email. I've always liked speed. Anyway, I wrote letters by hand, and I wrote them to everybody, my best friend, my college boyfriend, the other people I most loved, and I told them how I had lied to them. And if it were possible, could they forgive me? And if not, I would understand. I mailed those letters, and I waited in dread of the anger and rejection that I feared would come from my betrayal. <sighs> Responses came by phone, and they came by mail, handwritten letters again over the next few weeks, but they were not the responses I had feared. What was so surprising to me is that no one was angry. Without exception, every letter was like the one from my college boyfriend which said, Oh, Al, I am so sorry and so sad for you. If only I had known, I would have helped however I could. Fast forward many years. I'm sitting at the head of a creative writing classroom next to a jittery young man named Philip. I'm going to call him Philip. Philip is on his third class with me, and he always pulls his chair right next to me. I mean, right next to me. Philip carries Jesus stickers with him, and throughout class, he fills page after page with perfectly aligned rows of Jesus's head. The stickers, one after another, they a certain amount fit on each row. He drums his fingers on the table, and every few minutes he turns to me and says, Allison, do you think I'll graduate? And I say, I do, Philip. It doesn't matter if I'm talking. It doesn't matter if another student is talking. Philip needs to ask this question. Another minute or so goes by. Allison, do you think I'll graduate? I do, Philip. Allison, do you think I'll graduate? I do, Philip. And then, I'm sorry for asking that all the time. I'm sorry to be this way. You know what, Philip? It doesn't bother me. If you need to ask that question, just ask, and I'll answer. I like you just the way you are. I remember Philip looking at me when I said that with a certain look on his face. It was gone a second later. I cannot put an exact word on what that look is, but it's familiar to me. It's the same look I saw on my own father's face a few years ago when he was visiting, and the two of us were talking. I don't know, Allison, he said at one point. I've been fat my whole life. 
And a giant wave of something swelled up inside me, and I put my hand on his and said, Dad, you know what? I don't give a shit if you're fat. There's a lot worse things than being fat. It's the same look I saw on my son's face when he had to take math for the second and third time. Ma, I'm so sorry. I suck at math. And I said, you know what? So do I. Who cares? And I'm sitting here at this table now thinking of my son and my dad and my student, Philip, and that fleeting look on their faces. I'm thinking of Kilt Man wandering the streets of Boston with his restless, faraway eyes and his endless craving for hard-boiled eggs. I'm thinking of the homeless woman on the Longfellow Bridge, and did she even like pumpkin muffins? I hope so. And I'm thinking of me, the long-ago me, who hated herself for what she couldn't seem to stop doing. That girl who thought she was never good enough was unworthy, unlovable. Why are we so hard on each other? Why are we so hard on ourselves? If someone had said to me back then, you know what, girl, you don't have to try so hard. I like you just the way you are. Would it have made a difference? I look back, and I don't know. The only thing I do know all these long years later is that everyone is hungry. first time I ever read Small Kindnesses by Danusha Lamaris, it's shown up from my computer screen. I read it again and again. I instantly ordered the book it came from, Bonfire Opera, from Majors and Quinn, my neighborhood bookstore. Danusha Lamaris's poems transfix me with their detail, their beautiful language, their imagery, their wisdom, and most of all, their kindness. I follow her on Instagram, and there, too, her smile is ever-present and glowing. The woman emanates compassion. And side note, she has the greatest, most colorful sense of style. Here is her poem, Small Kindnesses. Small Kindnesses by Danusha Lamaris I've been thinking about the way... When you walk down a crowded aisle, people pull in their legs to let you by. Or how strangers still say bless you when someone sneezes, a leftover from the bubonic plague. Don't die, we are saying. And sometimes, when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly, we don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it to smile at them and for them to smile back, for the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder, and for the driver in the red pickup truck to let us pass. 
We have so little of each other now, so far from tribe and fire, only these brief moments of exchange. What if they are the true dwelling of the holy, these fleeting temples we make together when we say, here, have a seat, go ahead, you first. I like your hat. Well, my friends, that is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked it, please spread the word by sending the link to someone else who might like it. And if you're so inclined, give us a good rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. Original theme music for our show is by Dylan Parisi. Additional music is composed and performed by Kelly Krebs. Today's poem, Danusha Lamaris's Beautiful Small Kindnesses, is from her book, Bonfire Opera, and is read here with permission of the University of Pittsburgh Press. It is read by Luke O'Brien. Words by Winter is created and hosted by me, writer Allison McGee. Tell me what you're going through, what uncertainties or troubles you're dealing with, maybe in the silence of your own mind and heart. Let me know, and I will go in search of a poem to help you through, to help us all through the way that poems have been helping me ever since I was a little girl. Sometimes life feels too hard, too intense, too much, and if that is where you are right now, whoever or wherever you are, reach out. You can send me a voice memo via email to wordsbywinterpodcast at gmail.com. Or drop me a line at the same address, which again is wordsbywinterpodcast at gmail.com. For more information, go to alisonmcgee.com. Words by Winter, conversations, reflections, and poems about the passages of life, because it is rough out there, and we have to help each other through.